Chapter Six of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. The Lady and Her Lovers. The city of Poitiers is a beautiful old town. At least, it is a town in which there is much to interest. The memories of many remote periods cross and intersect each other like the arches of a Gothic church, forming a fretwork overhead of varied and solemn though dim associations the roman and the goth and the frank and the englishman have all there left indelible traces of their footsteps and each spot through the streets of that city and through the neighbouring country is shadowed or brightened by the recollection of great and extraordinary deeds in the past there is something in it also unlike any other town in the world the number and extent of its gardens the distance between its various houses would make it look more like an orchard than a town, did not, every here and there, rise up some striking edifice, some fine church, bearing in its windows the leopards or the fleur-de-lis, as the case may be, a town-house, a broken citadel, or a Roman amphitheatre in ruins, and all amidst rich green gardens and grapes and flowering shrubs. The Count de Mosseuil and his train, after passing the gates of the city, which were then duly watched and warded, rode on to the house of the governor, which was at that time in the great square. It had probably been a Roman building, of which part of the portico had been preserved, forming the end of one of the wings, for, during three or four centuries, a tall porch had remained there supported by three columns. Though the principal gate was in the centre of the house, it was usual for the people of the town to enter by this porch, and such was the only purpose that it served. The whole aspect of the place has been altered long since. The governor's house has been changed into an inn, where I have slept on more than one occasion, and of the three columns nothing more remains but the name, which has descended to the hotel. It was in that time, however, a large brick building, with an immense arched gateway in the centre, under which Goliath of Gath himself might have passed on horseback with a feather in his cap. Beyond was the inner court, with the usual buildings around it, but upon a large and magnificent scale, and on the left, under the archway, rose a wide flight of stone steps, leading to the principal apartments above. Throughout the whole town, and especially in the neighbourhood of the governor's house, there appeared, on the day of the Count's arrival, a greater degree of bustle and activity than Poitiers generally displays, and as he drew up his horse under the archway to ascend the stairs, several peasant girls, after pausing to look at the cavaliers, passed on into the courts beyond, loaded with baskets full of flowers and fruit and green branches. As he had sent on a messenger the day before to announce his approach, the Count de Mousseau knew that he was expected and it was evident from the sudden rushing forth of all the servants, the rapid and long ringing of the great bell, which went upstairs, and a thousand other such signs, that orders had been given to treat him with especial distinction. While some of the masters of the stables took possession of his grooms and horse-boys to show them to the place appointed for them, two other servants in costumes, which certainly did honour to the taste of Monsieur le Marquis Auguste de Hericourt, marshalled the Count of the Chevalier, followed by their respective valets and pages, without which men of their rank and fortune travelled not in that day, to the vestibule at the top of the staircase. 
a step beyond the door of the vestibule, which was also a step beyond what etiquette required, the governor of the province was already waiting to receive the Count de Mosseuil. He was a frank, amiable, and kind-hearted old gentleman, as tall and as thin, and as brown as a cypress tree, and grasping the Count's hand, he welcomed him to Poitiers as an old friend, and the son of an old friend, and likewise, perhaps we might say, as one whose high character and fame as a soldier he greatly and sincerely admired. While speaking to the Count so eagerly that he saw nothing else, the governor felt a hand laid upon his arm, and, turning, beheld the chevalier, whom he welcomed also warmly, though in a peculiar tone of intimacy which he had not used towards the Count de Mosseuil. "'Ah, Devron, he said, "'what brought you here, mad boy? "'I want not to see you, but I can tell you "'I shall put you in a garret as you deserve, "'for the house is filled to the doors. "'This is our first grand reception, "'our little provincial appartement. "'All the nobility in the neighbourhood are flocking in, "'and, as we cannot lodge them all, "'we are obliged to begin our entertainment as early as possible, "'in order to suffer some of them to get home betimes.' This must plead my apology, my dear Count, for not giving you more spacious apartments yourself, and for not taking you at once to the Duchess, who is all anxiety to see our hero. Some refreshments shall be taken to you in your own apartment, to your little salon, where perhaps you will give a corner to this wild chevalier, for there is that young puppy, Ericor, who only arrived last night, up to the elbows in the dining-room in all sort of finery and foolery. "'But where is la belle Clémence?' demanded the chevalier. "'Where is the beauty of beauties? "'Will she not give me a quarter of an hour in her boudoir, think you, duke?' "'Get along with you,' replied the duke. "'Clémence does not want to see you. "'Go and refresh yourself with the Count. "'By that time we shall have found a place to put you in, "'and when you have cast off your dusty apparel, ransacked the perfumers,' "'Sought out your best lace, and made yourself look as insupportably conceited "'as you used to do two years ago at Versailles, "'it will be time for you to present yourself in our reception-room, "'and there you can see Clémence, who, I dare say, will laugh at you to your heart's content.' "'So be it, so be it,' replied the chevalier, with a well-satisfied air. "'Come, Count, we must obey the Governor. "'See if he do not make himself as despotic here as His Majesty in Paris.' "'which is our way, Monsieur de Rouvray.' "'And with that appearance of indifference "'which has always been a current sort of affectation "'with men of the world, "'from the days of Horace downwards, "'he followed the servants to the handsome apartments "'prepared for the Count de Mousseau, "'which certainly needed no apology. "'On the table the Count found a packet of letters "'which Monsieur de Rouvray had brought for him from Paris.' They contained nothing of any great importance, being principally from old military companions. But after the chevalier had taken some refreshments with him, and retired to the apartments which had been prepared in haste for him, the Count took up his letters and carried forward by the memory of old times, went on reading, forgetful of the necessity of dressing himself for the approaching fete. He promised himself little or no pleasure indeed therein, for he expected to see few, if any, with whom he was acquainted and his mind was too deeply occupied with important and even painful subjects for him to think of mingling in lighter scenes with any very agreeable sensations. He did not remember, then, the necessity of preparation till he had to call for lights and heard the roll of carriage-wheels and the clattering of horses. He then, however, hastened to repair his forgetfulness, 
but Jerome was not as prompt and ready as usual, or else he was far more careful of his master's appearance. We will not indeed pause upon all the minute points of his toilet, but certainly by the time that the valet would acknowledge that his master was fit to go down, he had given to the Count's fine person every advantage that dress can bestow, and perhaps Albert of Mousset did not look at all the worse for that air of high and thoughtful intelligence, which the deep interest whereupon his mind was fixed called up in his countenance, with the fine and noble features of which that expression was so peculiarly suited. When at length he entered the little saloon that had been allotted to him, he found one of the officers of the governor waiting to conduct him to the reception rooms, and, on asking if the chevalier was ready, he found that he had been there seeking him and had gone down. It was a slight reproach for his tardiness, and the Count hastened to follow. The way was not long, but the stairs had been left somewhat dark, as but little time had been given for preparation, and when the doors were opened for the young Count, a blaze of light and a scene of magnificence burst upon his eyes, which he had not been prepared to see in that remote part of France. The rooms were brilliantly, though softly, lighted, and the principal blaze came from the great saloon at the farther end. Rich hangings and decorations were not wanting, but as they were, of course, to be procured with greater difficulty than in Paris, the places where many draperies would have hung, or where gilded scrolls, trophies, and other fanciful embellishments would have appeared, were filled up with much better taste from the storehouses of nature, and garlands and green boughs, and the multitude of flowers which that part of the country produces, occupied every vacant space. A very excellent band of musicians, which the Duke had brought with him from the capital, was posted in an elevated gallery of the great saloon, and the sweet notes of many popular melodies of the day came pouring down the long suite of apartments, softened but not rendered indistinct by the distance. In the first chamber which the Count entered were a great number of the inferior officers of the governor, in their dresses of ceremony, giving that antechamber an air of almost regal state. And through the midst of them was passing, at the moment, a party of the high nobles of the province, who had just arrived before the Count came in. Though not above one half of the invited had yet appeared, there were numerous groups in every part of the rooms, and at more than one of the tables which, as customary in that age, were set out for play, the young Count found persons whom he knew, and stopped to speak with them as he advanced. The Duke and Duchess de Rouvray had taken their station in the great saloon, but in the smaller saloon immediately preceding it, Albert de Mousset paused by one of the tables to speak to the Prince de Marcillac, who was leaning against it, not playing, but turning his back with an air of indifference upon the scene beyond. "'Ah, Monsieur de Mousset,' he said, "'it is an unexpected pleasure to see you here. I thought you were in Flanders.' "'I was fourteen days ago,' replied the Count, "'but as little did I expect to see you.' "'Oh, this is in some sort my native country,' replied the Prince, and being here upon family affairs, I could not, of course, hesitate to come and grace the first entertainment of the good duke. There seems a promise of a goodly assembly, and indeed there are attractions enough, what between a new governor, a new governess, and Clémence de Marly. "'And pray, who is Clémence de Marly?' demanded the Count. "'I am a rustic, you see, and have never yet heard of her.' "'Rustic, indeed,' said the prince. "'Why, all the Parisian world is mad about her. 
She is the most admired, the most adored, I may say, of all the stars or comets or what not that have appeared in my day. As beautiful as Hebe, as graceful as the brightest of the graces, as proud as Juno, about ten times colder than Diana, and as witty as Madame de Cornuel. People began to fancy that the king himself was in love with her. Only you know that now, under the domination of l'ami de l'ami, those days of folly and scandal have gone by. And, on my word, the saucy beauty treated majesty no better than she does nobility. I myself heard her... But who is Clémence de Marly? demanded the Count again. You have not satisfied me, Marciac. Of what race or family is she? I know of no such name or family connected with the Rouvres. The prince replied in a lower tone, She is an orphan, a foundling, and anything you like. Some say, he added in a whisper, a natural child of the king's own, but others say, and this is the true story, that she is a natural child of the Rouvres. There was a tale some time ago, you know, before he married, about him and the Countess de Blanc, a person of very large fortune, and as this girl has wealth at command and lives always with the Rouvres, there can be no doubt of the matter. Madame de Rouvray, having no family, wisely treats her as her child and spoils her as if she were her grandchild. They used to say she was to be married to your friend, the Chevalier d'Evron, whom I saw hanging at her elbow just now. Ericourt vows that he will cut the throat of any man who marries her without his consent. But Louvois is supposed to have laid out a match for her even nearer to his race than that. Senelai is not without hopes of carrying off the prize for some of his people, and they seem in these days to care no more for the bend sinister than if the Adam and Eve laws still prevailed, and we were all the children of nature together. "'This is the fair lady that Devron has been talking to me about,' replied the Count, "'but he talked of her and her beauty so coolly "'that I can scarcely suppose he is much in love.' "'Just come round hither and look at him, then,' said Marciac, "'moving a little farther down so as to give a fuller view into the other room. "'You know Devron's way of being in love, "'lying down upon a sofa and playing with a feather fan, "'while the lady stands at the distance of two yards from him.' and he says more clever things to her in five minutes than anybody else can say in an hour. There he is, doing it even now. The Count moved slowly into the place which Marciac had left for him, so as not to attract attention by flagrant examination of what was going on, and then raised his eyes towards the part of the great saloon at which the prince had been looking. The group that they lighted on was certainly in every respect a singular one. In the centre of it stood, or rather leaned, beside a high-backed chair, in an attitude of the most perfect grace that it is ever possible to conceive, which could not have been studied, for there was ease and nature in every line, a young lady, apparently of one or two and twenty years of age, whose beauty was both of a very exquisite and a very singular cast. It fully justified the description which had been given of it by the Chevalier d'Evron. The eyes were deep, deep blue but fringed with long and dark lashes, thick-set but smooth, and sweeping in one even graceful fringe. The lips were indeed twin roses, the complexion delicately fair, and yet the face bearing in the cheek the warm hue of undiminished health. Those lips, even when not speaking, were always a little, a very little, parted, showing the bright pearl-like teeth beneath. The brow was smooth and fair, 
and yet the eyebrow which marked the exact line of the forehead above the eyes changed by the slightest elevation or depression the whole aspect of the countenance with every passing emotion with every change too the other features harmonized and there was a bright sparklingness about the face even at that distance which made it to the eyes of the count resemble a lovely landscape in an early summer morning where everything seems fresh life and brightness the ear too which was slightly turned towards them was most beautiful and the form though the dress of that day did not serve to expose it much was seen swelling through the drapery in every line of exquisite beauty the hand the arm the foot the neck and throat were all perfect as any sculptor could have desired to model and the whole with the grace of the attitude and the beauty of the expression formed an object that one might well have wished to look at for long hours on the right of the lady precisely as the prince had described him lay the chevalier d'evron richly dressed and perhaps affecting a little more indifference than he really felt half kneeling half sitting at her feet was the marquis de Ericourt, saying nothing but looking up in her face with an expression which plainly implied that he was marvelling whether she or himself were the loveliest creature upon earth on her left hand stood a gentleman whom the count instantly recognised as one of the highest and most distinguished nobles of the court of louis the fourteenth several years older than either the marquis or the chevalier but still apparently as much if not more smitten than either behind her and round about her in various attitudes were half a dozen others each striving to catch her attention for a single moment but it was to the elder gentleman whom we have mentioned that she principally listened except indeed when some witticism of the chevalier caused her to turn and smile upon him for a moment amongst the rest of the little train behind her were two personages for neither of whom the count de mosoy entertained any great esteem the chevalier de rohan a ruined and dissipated scion of one of the first families of france and a gentleman of the name of atreumont whom the count had known while serving with the army in flanders and who though brave as a lion bore such a character for restless and unprincipled scheming that the count had soon reduced their communication to a mere passing bow all the rest of those who surrounded her were distinguished as far as high station and wealth went and many were marked for higher and better qualities but in general she seemed to treat them all as mere slaves sending one hither with a message and another thither for something that she wanted with an air of proud command as if they were born but to obey her will the group was as we have said an interesting and a curious one but what was there in it that made the count de mosoy turn deadly pale what was there in it that made his heart beat with feelings which he had never known before in gazing at any proud beauty of this world what was it made him experience different sensations towards that lady the first time that he beheld her from those which he had ever felt towards others was it the first time that he had ever beheld her oh no there though features were somewhat changed by the passing of a few years though the beauty of the girl had expanded into the beauty of the woman though the form had acquired roundness and contour without losing one line of grace there in that countenance and in that form so beheld again the dream of his young imagination there he saw her of whom he had thought so often 
and with whose image he had sported in fancy till the playfellow of his imagination had become the master of his feelings. And now that he did see her, he saw her in a situation and under circumstances that gave him pain. All the beauty of person, indeed, which he had so much admired was there, but all those charms of the heart and of the mind which his fancy had read in the book of that beauty seemed now reversed, and he saw but a spoilt, proud, lovely girl, apparently as vain and frivolous as the rest of a vain and frivolous court. "'You are silent long, de Mousset,' said the Prince de Marciac. "'You are silent very long. You seem amongst the smitten, my good friend.' "'What, shall we see the fair lands and chateaus "'of the first Protestant gentleman in France "'laid at the feet of yon pretty dame? "'Take my advice, Mosset. "'Take the advice of an elder man than yourself. "'Order your horses to be saddled early tomorrow morning "'and get you back to your castle or to the army. "'Even if she were to have you, Mosset, "'she would never suit you. "'Her heart, man, is as cold as a Russian winter "'and as hard as the nether millstone, "'and never in this world will she love any other thing but her own pretty self. I am not at all afraid of her, replied the Count. I have seen her before, and was only admiring the group around her. Seen her and forgotten her, exclaimed Marciac, so as not to remember her when I spoke of her. In the name of heaven, let her not hear that. Nay, tell it not at the court, if you would maintain your reputation for wit, wisdom, and good taste. But I suppose, in fact, you are as cold as she is. "'Go and speak to her, Mosset. "'Go and speak to her, for I see, indeed, you are quite safe.' "'Not I, indeed,' said the Count. "'I shall go and speak to the Duke and his excellent lady, "'and I suppose in time shall have to go through "'all sorts of necessary formalities with La Belle Clémence. "'But till it is needful, I have no inclination "'to increase any lady's vanity, "'who seems to have so much of it already.' "'Thus saying, he turned away, "'only hearing the Prince exclaim, "'Oh, mighty Sybarite!' "'And moving with easy grace through the room, "'he advanced into the great saloon, "'cast his eyes round the whole extent, "'looking for the Duke and Duchess, "'and passing over La Belle Clémence and her party "'with a mere casual glance, "'as if he scarcely saw or noticed her. "'There was an immediate whisper in the little group itself. "'Several of those around took upon them "'to tell her who he was.' and all eyes followed him as with the same calm and graceful but somewhat stately steps he advanced to the spot where the duke and duchess were placed and was warmly greeted by the latter as an old and valued friend she made a place for him by her side and leaning down from time to time by the good old lady's chair he took the opportunity of each interval between the appearance of the new guests to address to her some little kindly and graceful observation "'calling back her memory to old times "'when she had fondled his boyhood, "'and by mingling perhaps a little of the melancholy "'that adheres to the past with more cheerful subjects, "'rendered them thereby not the less pleasant. "'The Duchess was well pleased with his attention "'and for some time seemed inclined to enjoy it alone. "'But at length she said, "'I must not keep you here, Count, all night, "'or I shall have the Duke jealous at sixty which would never do. You must go and say sweet things, as in duty bound, to younger dames than I am. See, there is Mademoiselle de Fronsac, as pretty a creature as ever was seen, and our Clémence, you know Clémence, do you not? But look, Mademoiselle de Fronsac, as if to give you a fair opportunity, has dropped her bracelet. 
The Count advanced to pick up the bracelet for the young lady to whom his attention had been called, but his purpose was anticipated by a gentleman who stood near, and at the same moment the chevalier, seeing his friend detached from the side of the Duchess, crossed the saloon towards him and took him by the arm. "'Come, Albert,' he said, "'come, this is affectation. You must come and undergo the ordeal of those bright eyes. She has been speaking of you, and with deep interest, I assure you.' The Count smiled. "'To mortify some culprit lover,' he said, "'or give a pang to some young foolish heart. "'Was it you, Louis?' he asked in the same tone. "'Was it you she sought to tease by speaking with interest of another?' "'You are wrong, Albert,' said the Chevalier in a low voice, "'leading him gradually towards the spot. "'You are wrong. I do not seek Clémence de Marly. "'My resolution has long been taken. "'I shall never marry.' nor would any consideration upon earth lead her to marry me. I know that full well, but while I say so, I tell you too that you do her injustice. You must not judge of her at once. They were now within a few steps of the spot where Clémence stood, and the Count, who had been looking down while he advanced, listening to the low words of the Chevalier, now raised his eyes as the other took a step forward to introduce him. To his surprise he saw the colour varying in the cheek of the lovely being before whom he stood, and a slight degree of flutter in her manner and appearance, which Albert de Monceau could only account for by supposing that the scene in which they had last met, the robbers and the wood, and the plunder of the carriage, had risen up before her eyes, and produced the agitation he saw in one who was apparently so self-possessed in her usual demeanour. There upon her finger, too, he saw the identical ring that he had saved for her from the robbers, and as he was in no way vain, he attributed the heightened colour to all those remembrances. But while he recalled that evening, his feelings towards Clémence grew less severe. He felt there was a tie between them of some interest. He felt, too, that her demeanour, then, had been very different from that which it appeared to be now. Though scarcely ten words had been spoken in the wood, those words had been all indicative of deep feelings and strong affections. There had been the signs of the heart, the clinging memories of love, the pure sensations of an unworldly spirit, and when he now gazed upon her, surrounded by flatterers and lovers, heartless herself, and seeming to take no delight but in sporting with the hearts of others, the ancient story of the two separate spirits in the same form seemed realised before him and he knew not how to reconcile the opposite traits that he observed. All this passed through his mind in a moment. Rapid thought that, winging its way along the high road of time, can cover years in a single instant, had glanced over all that we have said. Even while the words of introduction were hanging upon the tongue of the Chevalier d'Evron, the Count bowed low but gravely, met the full glance of those lustrous eyes with the slightest change of countenance, and was about to have added some commonplace and formal compliment, but Clémence de Marly spoke first. "'I sent the chevalier to you, Monsieur de Morsay,' she said with the same musical voice which he remembered so well, "'because you seemed not to recognise me, and I wished to thank you for a service that you rendered long ago to a wild girl who might probably have been killed by a fiery horse that she was riding,' had you not stopped it, and given her back the rein which she had lost. Perhaps you have forgotten it, for I hear that great acts are so common to the Count de Mousseux 
that he is likely not to recollect what was to him a trifling event. To me, however, the service was important, and I have not forgotten either it or the person who rendered it. The eye of the Chevalier d'Evron was upon the Count de Mosseux while the lady spoke, and there was a sparkling brightness in it which his friend scarcely understood. At the same time, however, it was scarcely possible for human nature to hear such words from such lips, totally unmoved. "'Your pardon, madam,' replied the Count. "'I have never forgotten the adventure either, but I did not expect that you would have remembered so trifling a service. I recollected you the moment that I saw you, but did not, of course, venture to claim to be recognised on the merit of so insignificant an act.' "'I can answer for his not having forgotten it,' said the Chevalier d'Evron, "'for it is not more than five or six days ago, Mademoiselle de Marly, "'that he told me the whole circumstances. "'And if I would, I could mention—' "'The colour rose slightly in the Count de Mosseuil's cheek, "'as the Chevalier d'Evron gazed upon him with a malicious smile. "'But the latter, however, paused in his career, only adding, "'If I would, I could mention all this grave Count's comments upon that event.' "'But I suppose I must not.' "'Nay, nay,' exclaimed Clémence, "'I insist upon your telling us. "'You are our bondsman and slave. "'As you have vowed worship and true service, "'I command you, Monsieur le Chevalier, "'to tell the whole without reserve, "'to give us the secrets of the enemy's camp.' "'I hope, madam,' said the Count, "'willing to turn the conversation, "'and yet knowing very well "'that he might obviate his own purpose "'if he showed any anxiety to do so.' "'I hope, madam, that you do not class me amongst the enemy. "'If you do, I can assure you, you are very much mistaken.' "'That is what I wish to know, Count,' replied the lady, smiling. "'It is for that very purpose of knowing whether you are of the friends or the enemies "'that I put the Chevalier here upon his honour as to your comments.' "'I suppose, madam,' said the elder gentleman to whom she had been speaking "'during the former part of the evening,' and who did not seem at all well pleased with the interruption occasioned by the Count's presence. I suppose, madam, if you put the Chevalier upon his honour, he will be obliged to keep secret that which was entrusted to him in confidence. Clémence turned and gazed at him for a moment in silence, and then said, You are right, Monsieur le Duc de Melcourt, though I did not think to hear you take part against me. I will find means to punish you, and to show you my power and authority in a way that perhaps you do not know. Monsieur le Chevalier, we shall excuse you for your contumacy, having the means of arriving at information by a greater power. Monsieur de Mosseuil, she continued, raising her head with a look of queenly authority, we command you to give us the information yourself, but that the ears of these worthy cavaliers and gentlemen who stand around may not be gratified by the intelligence, "'we will permit you to lead us to the dance "'which we see they are preparing for in the other room.' "'She extended her hand towards him. "'He could not, of course, refuse to take it, "'and after giving one glance of gay and haughty irony "'at the group she left behind, "'Clémence de Marly moved forward towards the other room "'with Albert of Mosset. "'With the same air of proud consciousness "'she passed through the whole of the first saloon. "'But the moment that she entered the second, "'which was comparatively vacant,' as the dancers were gathering in the third, her manner entirely altered. The Count felt her hand rest somewhat languidly in his. Her carriage lost a great degree of its stately dignity. The look of coquettish pride passed away, and she said, 
Monsieur de Mosset, I need not tell you that my object in exercising in this instance that right of doing anything that I like unquestioned, which I have found it convenient to assume, is not to ask you any foolish question of what you may have said or thought concerning a person but little worthy of your thoughts at all. Perhaps, indeed, you may have already guessed my object in thus forcing you, as it were, to dance with me against your will. But that does not render it the less necessary for me to take the first, perhaps the only opportunity I may have, of thanking you deeply, sincerely, and truly, for the great service and the kind, the manly, the chivalrous manner in which it was performed, that you rendered me on the night of Monday last. I have my own particular reasons, and perhaps may have reasons also for many other things that appear strange, for not wishing that adventure to be mentioned anywhere. Although I had with me two servants attached to the carriage, and also my old and faithful attendant whom you saw, there was no chance of my secret being betrayed by any one but you. I was not sure that I had made my wishes plain when I left you, and was anxious about to-night but I saw in a moment from your whole demeanour in entering the room that I was quite safe, and I may add my thanks for that, to my thanks for the service itself. The service, lady, required no thanks, replied the Count. I do believe there is not a gentleman in France that would not have done the same for any woman upon earth. Clémence shook her head with a grave, even a melancholy look, replying, You estimate them too highly, Count. We women have better opportunities of judging them, and I know that there are not three gentlemen in France, and perhaps six in Europe, who would do anything for any woman without some selfish, if not some base, motive, unless his own gratification were consulted rather than her comfort. "'Nay, nay, nay, you are bitter indeed,' said the Count. "'On my word, I believe that there is not one French gentleman who would not, as I have said, have done the same for any woman, and certainly when it was done for you.' Any little merit that it might have had otherwise was quite lost. Hush, hush, said Clémence with a blush and a somewhat reproachful smile. Hush, hush, Monsieur de Moset. You forget that I am accustomed to hear such sweet speeches from morning till night, and know their right value. If you approve to me that you really esteem me, do not take your tone from those empty coxcombs that flutter through such scenes as these. Be to me, as far as we are brought into communication together, the same Count de Mosseuil that I have heard you are to others, frank, straightforward, sincere. Indeed I will, replied the Count, feeling the full influence of all his fanciful dreams in the past, reviving in the present. But will you never be offended? There is little chance, she replied as they moved on, that we should ever see enough of each other for me to be offended. You, I hear, avoid the court as far as possible. I am doomed to spend the greater part of my life there, and I fear there is very little chance of the Duke, my guardian, going to the quiet shades of Ruffini, where first I had the pleasure of seeing you. Were you then at Ruffini when I first saw you? demanded the Count, with some surprise. Yes, she answered, but I was staying there with some of my own relations, who were on a visit to the Duke. Do you remember... I dare say you do not. Do you remember meeting me some days after with a party on horseback? Yes, he replied. I have it all before my eyes even now. And the lady who was upon my left hand, she said. Quite well, replied the Count. Was that your mother? Alas, no, replied Clémence. That was my stepmother. My mother died three years before. But to return to what we were saying, 
I do not pretend to be less vain than other women, and therefore can scarcely answer for it, that if you were to tell me harsh truths, I might not be offended. But I will tell you what, monsieur, de Morsay, I would try, I would try as steadily as possible not to be offended. And even if I were, I know my own mind sufficiently to say I would conquer it before the sun went down twice. That is all I could desire, replied the Count, and if you promise me to do so, I will always be sincere and straightforward with you. What an opportunity that promise gives, replied the lady, of asking you to be sincere at once, and tell me what were the comments of which the Chevalier spoke. Would that be ungenerous, Monsieur de Mosset? I think it would, replied the Count, but I will pledge myself to one thing, that if you keep your promise towards me for one month, and take no offence at anything I may say, I will tell you myself what those comments were without the slightest concealment whatsoever. The eyes of Clémence de Marly sparkled as she answered, "'You shall see,' but they had lingered so long that the dance was on the eve of commencing, and they were forced to hurry on into the other room. There the Count found the eyes of the Prince de Marciac wherever he turned, and there was a peculiar expression on his countenance, not precisely a smile, but yet approaching to it, with a slight touch of sarcastic bitterness on the lip, which was annoying. Could the Count have heard, however, the conversation that was going on amongst two or three of the group, which he and Clémence had quitted shortly before, he might have felt still more annoyed. There were three persons who took but a small part in that conversation, the Chevalier, the young Marquis de Hericourt, and the Duc de Melcourt. It was one of those that stood behind who first spoke. "'How long will she be?' he demanded. "'In doing what?' said another. "'In fixing the fetters,' replied the first, "'in making him one of the train.' "'Not two whole days,' said the second. "'Not two whole hours, I say,' added a third. "'Look at them now, how they stand in the middle chamber. "'Depend upon it, when the Count comes back, "'we shall all have to make him our bow "'and welcome him as one of us.' There was a little shrivelled old man who sat behind, and had as yet said nothing. "'He will never be one of you, gentlemen,' he now said, joining in. "'He will never be one of you, for he sets out with a great advantage over you.' "'What is that?' demanded two or three voices at once. "'Why,' replied the old man, "'he is the first man under sixty I ever heard her even civil to in my life. "'There is Monsieur le Duc there.' You know he's out of the question because he's past the age. The Duc de Melcourt looked a little mortified and said, Sir, you are mistaken, and at all events she never said anything civil to you, though you are so much past the age. I never asked her, replied the other. But there is the Chevalier d'Evron, replied one of the younger men. She has said three or four civil things to him this very night. I heard her. "'as much bitter as sweet in them,' replied the old man. "'But at all events she does not love him.' "'She loves me more than you know,' said the chevalier quietly, "'and turning on his heel he went to join a gay party "'on the opposite side of the room, "'and perversely paid devoted attention to a fair lady "'whom he cared nothing about, "'and to whom the morals of any other court "'would have required him to pay no attentions "'but those of ordinary civility.' End of chapter 6